You know, one of the key values at Fellowship Bible Church is um, the value of being available to the Lord. And, you know, as we sang that last song and we, we sang out as if we believed it, that we're open, open, our hearts are open to be broken the way Jesus's heart is broken and, and to pour everything we have into advancing the kingdom. You know, it, it, it's something that as a congregation, that's how God is moving in us. It's a, when we're available for him. And you're going to have a chance this morning to hear from a man who's available. His name is Brett Durbin. He's the director of Trash Mountain. And I had the opportunity to travel with Brett to the Dominican Republic this past July. And I got to see firsthand uh, with my own eyes and smell all the smells of what a dump community looks like in a third world country. And in just a little bit, uh, let's see, about 10 days, I'm headed back to the Dominican Republic with a group from our church here and with a, a partnership with Topeka Bible Church, and we're going to be traveling back there. And we're really going to make a difference. And uh, you're, go- you're about to see a video that kind of details what Brett does and what his ministry does in uh, going to probably one of the darkest places on earth and offering the hope of Jesus Christ and the help of Jesus Christ. And uh, you're going to see the value of what God can do with one life that's available to him. Ten years ago, uh, serving Jesus Christ, living for Christ was a foreign concept to Brett Durbin. He grew up in a Christian home here in Topeka, and he walked away, walked away from his parents' faith and pursued pretty much everything but Christ. And um, about 10 years ago, Jesus Christ got a hold of his life and totally transformed him. And uh, Brett's a living testimony of what any of us can do if we're available to God to be used. If we could get over ourselves, get over our pride, get over our ego, get over our agendas and align ourselves with kingdom agendas that last forever, pouring our lives into God, his word and people. You're going to see how God transforms that. You're about to see about a 12-minute video of uh, Brett's recent trip to Cambodia where he came across a group of people who uh, work in the dumps. And these are, these are, this is a heavy, these are heavy images for us. And we're certainly not here to tug on your heartstrings and have you give an emotional response. It's true, we are giving uh, financially to these, these ministries and we do want you to give generously. But we want you to give because you realize there's something God can use us for. And we can't do this all in one night, but we can do something today. We can do something now that will make a difference. And Brett is, is uh, pursuing one of those opportunities at a time. And he's going to come and share right after this video. I was uh, telling the other services that... I've seen that probably a hundred times, and it really does not get any easier. If anything, I think it actually gets a little bit harder to watch. And uh, I was reminded of the, the silver lining I think we find there uh, with that specific location is that the little girl, Daylene, you know, her dream was to have her voice heard around the world, and that has happened. And so I guess that was kind of a, you know, a, one of those little, you know, silver linings that we can find with that situation. We've moved her and her family into a, a new home and uh, they're doing a lot better but the the problem is just immense the things that are going on over there and then in the other locations that we're dealing with and uh my name just as joe said my name's brett and uh it is a it's a blessing to be here it's a little um 
it's a little different than the typical church that I come to, and that's just because I grew up here. I grew up in, in Topeka and moved away about six years ago to go to seminary, and and uh, I have followed fellowship throughout that time because when I left, it was really starting to you know just take off and uh, and grow and just the things that they were doing within the city. And, and so I've been paying attention from a distance what was going on here. And a couple of years ago when Trash Mountain Project was uh, really just an idea, it was something that we were uh, discussing that we had been confronted with, I, I really needed to seek guys that I could I could respect and know that they would be honest with me. And I, and I didn't know uh, Pastor Joe at the time, but my brother introduced me to him. And we sat down and I talked to him about it. And he was one of those driving forces that, uh, that really, I think, confirmed that this was the right thing to do and that we needed to move forward with what we were doing. And, um, and so Joe and Fellowship at, at some level have been with us ever since this was, again, just a thought, just an idea of, of how do we respond to what we found. And so uh, today, one of the things I want to do is more just give you uh, a little bit about our vision, what it is we're doing, what are the purposes behind Trash Mountain Project, how did we begin, and, and what is the next step, what are we going to be doing, and really what is the... Um, the underlying reason we exist in what we're doing in these locations. And to put it in very simple terms, uh, Trash Mountain Project exists to share the love of Christ with kids and families that live in trash dump communities. And to know what a trash dump community is, you, you saw it there. They're very similar all over the world. In pretty much any third world country you have, any under, underdeveloped country with large cities, you're going to have these, these places. And so um, basically it's any place that has a large dump, you're going to have people that flock there. And the reason they, they go there is they can find food, they can find different things to live off of, but also they, they collect recyclables. That's what you're seeing them do when you're seeing them pick through the trash. And they sell that to a middleman uh, on the dump. And all of these places are run, they're really run by organized crime. Uh, I mean, the, the cities, the governments send the trucks in. I mean, that's where they dump all the trash for the city. But all of them have uh, really just oppressive gang presence uh, within the dump and the people that are actually being sold to uh, go and make a ton of money off of this. And so there's a lot of money in it. And it's also a very simple place to find children. Uh, and with the uh, this, the child trafficking problem we have in this world now, it's, it's just a, you can pluck kids off as you want, you know, if you're one of these people that are doing that. Um, we've talked to families who, uh, I've talked to a mom who sold her daughter for a cell phone and, and she was on drugs and she, did, she didn't know any better and she didn't even, she couldn't even turn the phone on. She just had a cell phone and, and her daughter was gone, you know, and they, they don't know where she went. And, and so the, the problems within these areas are so deep that to address them, you really have to do so in a holistic way. And what I mean by that is you have to look at the whole picture. Uh, we can't just go in and, and maybe, you know, take a few trips a year and, and uh, do a feeding station where we feed the people uh, up at the dump or, um, you know, do, a, you know, one little simple area. It's, we have to look at the whole picture. And the way I describe it really is it's like, you know, it's like shooting a BB gun at a bull uh, if you just look at one little area because that bull is going to keep coming. You know, and so if we look at everything that's going on, how do we build that up and build a foundation and, and really look at what is running that community to see true transformation? And, and obviously, as Christians, you know, the reason we're to be doing this is because this was Christ's command for us. We are to reach out to those that have nowhere else to turn but him. 
He uses us to do those things. And so when we look at it, we've developed a uh, kind of a missions model that we're going to be using in the Dominican Republic. And that's really where fellowship has come on board with us is to do work uh, in the DR, as I would will refer to it, and um, we, we've we come up with kind of a four-phase plan, and so it'll take several years to do it, but, you know, it'll start with, you know, building up the facilities for this ministry we partner with down there, because really we, we look for indigenous people that are in these areas that are already trying to help the situation, uh, and, and down there it's Pastor Pablo. He started a ministry that's really a Christian school that was about to close its doors and just fold uh, when, when we ran across him, you know, less than a year ago. And um, we we talked with him, and, and he's going to be able to do a lot better job at this than I can anyway. You know, our, our philosophy on this is that if we can find people from that culture and give them the resources they need to do the job they're trying to do, it's going to be much, much more effective coming from people that live there and know their cultural surroundings. And so that's what we're going to be doing is partnering with people like him. And so when we go down here in about a week and a half, like Pastor Joe referred to, uh, we're going to be putting an actual uh, building on top of a building. We're bringing, we already shipped it down. We're going to be building a whole floor on top of an existing building that's in decent shape to add classroom space. So in one week, we're actually going to be able to add 100 kids to the school, which is a huge amount of students. I mean, if we were to try to do that here to add 100 you know, children to a school, I don't know what the cost on that would be, but, you know, down there we can do it for very, very cheap. And we can do it with a team of our own people using their skills and the gifts that God's given them to, to get those things accomplished. You know, we're starting a food program. We're going to be uh, building a kitchen and a cafeteria to help feed the kids. We're doing that through a sponsorship program and getting the kids what they need nutritionally. Uh, we're starting health care uh, for these children. We actually have doctors uh, here in the in the church. Rick Tag is coming down with us to, to launch it here in a week and a half. And they're going to start with physicals and starting files on every single one of the kids, just like a medical file here, because none of these kids have ever been to a doctor. They, they may go if they get get hurt or if something happens they'll wind up in a hospital uh, but they don't just you know have the ability to have any kind of health care and there most of them have you know sickness and have problems and so we're starting that then we're gonna be taking dentists down uh, dr zeller and some other dentists from this area are going to be coming with us uh, from this church and from topeka bible church and other areas to help do a comprehensive look of it doing optometry and and so we're going to be doing that several times a year so that way they actually are getting addressed on a regular basis and so we can look at the whole child and find out what's going on with them because it's hard to learn and it's hard to open your heart to god when you're dying or when you're just in a situation that you're sick and you don't feel well all the time you know how do how do you approach that and so when we go into that that's our that's what we're thinking that's behind us in our mind when we're going into uh, to talk to these kids in this community. And so um, all those things, you know, aquapod systems, helping them start fish farms and growing their own food. It's all stuff that's way above my head, but we have people that that's their gift and they're going to be going down with us to build such things. That way we can actually teach them how to fish. You know, it's that whole concept. It's, you know, we're not just going to keep throwing resources at something. We want to help them get self-sustaining. And in that, the entire time, every, every bit of that, you have people ask you, why are you doing this? And we have the opportunity to share with them why we're doing this. And the reason we're doing this is Christ. You know, there's, there's plenty of humanitarian aid organizations that are doing great things, and, and I, I applaud them for what they're doing. Simply put, though, I don't believe that true hope is found just in humanitarian aid. It's found when we put Christ in that humanitarian aid. Christ is the one who created humanitarian aid. And so when we get into what we're doing, that is the driving force. That is what we're doing. And so... As we do that, it's obviously going to take uh, a significant amount of time and uh, resources, and that's something that you guys are doing right here. You know, your Christmas offering is something that's going to add 100 students to a school that didn't have that opportunity before. And hopefully we're going to be able to get all the kids off the dump in this, within this next year. 
And so that is just one thing that we can do, and it's a pretty simple thing. And we can start this, uh, this, this process to break the generational cycle that's been going on there for so long. So why do we do this? Yeah, I, men- I mentioned Christ, but that's, um, you know, it's kind of a general statement. Why, why do we do this? And I believe it starts with how we look at human beings. How do we look at each other? What, who are people? What are people to God? And, and David wrote in the Psalms that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. If we're all fearfully and wonderfully made by the God that created the cosmos, I think there's something to us. There's something that God sees extremely valuable in every human being that is out there. And, and he goes on to tell us before that in Genesis that in Genesis 1 and 9, you know, you see that God tells us that we're made in his image. If we're made in his image, there is something different about human beings that is not the same in every other type of creature and type of creation that's out there. We are different in God's eyes. And in these dumps, you find people, they don't care about human life. It's just an animal. They're just a human being that's below me, so what do I care? C.S. Lewis argued that there are no ordinary people because one of the qualities that gives human beings value is that we were created to be immortal. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours a life of a gnat. I would agree with that. So the first thing we have is that God sees us as precious. And so we need to see each other as precious before God. And so it triggers the idea of, okay, now how do we do that? How do we live that love? How do we live that command that God has given us? And when this all started, I was actually a college pastor down in Florida and, uh, you know, was looking for something for our college students, you know, looking for some kind of missions outreach. They wanted to do something extreme, you know, they really came to me and we want to go out and get our hands dirty. And so I was praying through that and I really felt like Central America would be a logical uh, place for us. Uh, down in Florida, there are neighbors, you know, and so we were going to be looking in those areas. And then a friend of mine that ran a, uh, he runs a children's ministry down there that's doing international child care now. Uh, he was down and uh, he, he went to our church. He walks up to me in the hall and he says, hey man, I was standing on this dump the other day and I thought of you. I'm like, okay, thanks man. Appreciate that. I'm not sure how to take that, but um, you know, and he said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. He goes, we were, we're doing some work with a ministry down there that, you know, actually gets kids off of a trash dump that work there. And it was an intriguing idea to me. I didn't really know much about such a thing. Uh, you know, I've seen poverty, but I hadn't really heard about that specific sector of society. And, and, uh, so I said, well, let me pray about it. I'll talk to my bosses and, and we'll go from there. And, uh, we decided to go and, and a friend of mine, Michael Barrett, who is the, the man who, uh, produced and created that documentary you saw, uh, he just loves storytelling and he loves using film to do it. And I just called him and I said, Hey man, you know, he's a good friend of mine. I was like, you know, I think there's quite a story here. You need to come with us. And, and, and he, well, let me think about it and I'll pray about it. And he got back to me and decided to go. And so, uh, myself and my wife and Michael jump on a plane and go down there. And I remember walking onto the dump the very first time and seeing what I saw. It triggered something that I had always struggled with. And that was, uh, there's a chunk of verses in Matthew 25. And if you want to turn to Matthew 25, we're going to be referring to it several times uh, in this time we have together. And there's this set of verses when Jesus was talking to his disciples about how my father is going to recognize you. How are you going to be recognized in the world as followers of myself? How are we going to be seen and how are we going to live out this love that God has told us about? And he mentions these things like, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When when I was friendless, you became my friend. 
And I had struggled with those because even at the time I was, I was a pastor, I was a professional Christian, you know, I, I didn't think I was doing those things. I was looking at my life and I was thinking, am, am I really doing that in the ministry I'm involved in? And, and so I'd been praying about that for years. And when I walked onto that dump the very first time, I saw all of those things in one location. All those things that Christ lists in that statement were in one place, one just couple of acre a plot of land, you saw the naked, you saw the sick, you saw the hungry, you saw the thirsty, the naked, I mean, just everything. You saw everything all in one spot, and I thought, this is it. This is that place I've been looking for. And as we uh, traveled around for the next couple of days, we went into some homes, you know, where the people were living, if you can call them homes, and, you know, saw you know, one-and-a-half-year-old baby that couldn't hold her head up at one-and-a-half years. And she was drinking coffee grounds and tang. You know, that was what she ate for food. And we're just sitting here thinking, what in the world? You know, I had a baby at the time, and I'm thinking, this isn't right. What do we do in response to this? And and so we got back, and we were there the last night, and my wife and I were sitting down, and she looked over at me, and she's kind of like, hey, what's going on over there? You know, and I'm like, yeah. You know, and she was having the same feeling, and I just said, I think things are about to change. And, and I can't tell you how, and we talked and just decided we need to go to Pastor Joni, who is the, the man who, the pastor who runs the, the ministry down there for the kids in Honduras, and uh, went up to him the next day and just said, hey, we just want to help you. We're not sure how that looks, but we just want to help. We're not, you know, we don't have any ideas. What do you think? He said, well, it's not to move down here. And which kind of threw me off because, you know, your first knee jerk is, well, I'll just quit my job. We'll, we'll come down here with the family and we'll, we'll do whatever you need us to do. And he said, well, it's, it's not to move down here. He said, let me explain why. He said, you are from America. He said, you have resources and connections like we don't even understand down here. And he said, from what I understand, you work in a, a large church in Florida. He's like, and here's, here's why. He said, because if people like you don't help, he pointed at this like 13, 14-year-old boy. He said, that guy dies Thursday. And it just really hit me. And it, I realized, like, well, we're down here shooting a documentary. We need to go be a voice for them. We need to get it out there that these people exist and that there are ways that we can respond. And so as we came back to Florida, you know, we were really struggling because uh, we couldn't simply walk away from this. In light of what we know Christ has taught us and what we're to do as, as believers and followers of him, we couldn't just walk away. I don't think that Jesus taught us to go into a place like this, you know, and tell him, hey, I'll be praying for you and walk away and not come back. Because simply put, usually, if you think about how God answers prayer, it's through someone else. He uses people to do such things. And a lot of times, I think the prayers that we're praying, if we would just look in the mirror and we look at the situation, we realize, okay, I'm praying for this person to get help, yet I'm standing here with this person, and I think I would actually have the ability to help them. And so that was what we were confronted with, was, well, is that this situation? Do we feel like, yeah, we're, we're praying for him, but are we willing not to do anything on our own behalf? We're just asking God to take care of it. And he uses us to do those things. And so it triggered a lot of questions. I started questioning God. I started questioning, you know, how, where are you at in this world of evil? Because I'll tell you what, when you go into one of these places, you think, how does God exist in a place that is this messed up? And, and most of us that believe in God or don't believe in God have thought that before. That may be a barrier for someone believing in God because they think, well, look at all the evil in the world. Where's God? And so I was asking those questions and thinking, God, is there any time when we actually see heaven touch earth? Are there any times when we see you, you step in and do these things in front of us? Because there's an awful lot of seeing hell on the earth, I can tell you that. 
There's an awful lot of pain and there's an awful lot of sickness. And so as I was asking those questions, I think the answer became, go back to that place that you struggled with. That was a chunk of verses. There's got to be something there. And so I went back to Matthew 25, and I thought, okay, well, I can't just look at that, that little spot. I need to look at it as a whole. I need to look at not only the chapter but the book and how it fits into the Bible. And so I kind of took myself back to seminary and decided to look back at Matthew. And if you break Matthew down and you look at how, it, how it's how it's worded or if you were to segment it out you see that there's these five discourses they call them and it's five verbal teachings of christ that were these key teachings that he had and you see them throughout matthew and the first one is a sermon on the mount most people that have looked or studied matthew uh, have heard of that it's the beatitudes it's this this first teaching uh that really was just you know all-encompassing on how we're to live and uh and it was in matthew 5 to 7 and he goes on and these two or three other discourses throughout um that talk about the mission of the church being having a mission mandate to go out and touch the world how we're to live with each other in community in the church how are we supposed to interact with each other here within this church within fellowship but then also how do we touch the world around us and you get to this last discourse and it's called the olivet discourse and it, it takes place in uh, matthew 24 and 25 and and what it is is it's actually christ talking about his return and you got to understand he was talking to the disciples he was talking to people who had not seen him leave yet they hadn't even seen him die yet and be raised from the dead and so at that point, they're thinking, hold on a second, you're talking about after you die, after you raise from the dead, then you're going to leave again, and then you're going to come back. And so it had to have been kind of a perplexing thing for those that hadn't seen any of this take place yet. But he's telling us about this kingdom that is going to be coming, this uh, my kingdom, when I come and create the new heaven and the, the new earth, and everything is set to rights, this is what it's going to look like. So right now, this is how you should live. If you want to try to bring that to earth, if you want to try to live in a way that I have set up, the way this is supposed to be, this is how it's done. And so within the Olivet Discourse, you have, uh, you got to understand where it was, where it was going on. And this was right after Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem. He rode in. It was the, the Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. He comes riding in and he's kind of ushered into Jerusalem as a king would be ushered in. People throw down their cloaks and all these palm branches and, uh, and he comes riding in and a lot of the people following him had to have been thinking, hey, he's taking his place. You know, this, this guy that we know is God's son is taking his place. He's about to set it up. He's about to set up his kingdom. And what happens after that is probably a little bit confusing to them because the next day he gets up, he goes in and he trashes the temple. And he goes in and he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. You evildoers. It's, he's talking about when they're in there ripping people off and buying and selling and, and taking advantage of people in the temple. And he said, this is my father's house. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. And he goes in and just, and he goes off. He gets aggressive. And then the next day he decides, I'm going to challenge all the religious leaders. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge all the intellectual religious leaders of this time. They're called the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he goes at it with them. And he, he doesn't only tell them what they're saying and what they're teaching is wrong. He tells them, you are going to be judged. And so he's getting into this mode of, he, he kind of is turning in, in my opinion, we're starting to see more of the God side of what he's going, coming to say to those people that are dragging his father's name through the mud. And so he gets to that point, and then he turns his attention to the disciples, and they're, uh, they're walking, this, the way it was said is they're walking out of um, Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives. And from what I'm told, uh, if you're up on uh, the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem really well. It's a good view. I've never been there, but you can see everything. And so you see right at the beginning in Matthew 24, the disciples start asking you know, about these buildings. You know, It's kind of almost like, are you impressed with these buildings, or is your kingdom going to have buildings like this? And you know those times when you're reading scripture and you can just see Jesus going like, 
Really? You've been walking with God for the last few years, just raised a guy from the dead a couple weeks ago. You know, I mean, and they're asking this question, am I impressed by this building? He says, not one of these bricks is going to stand. Because what his point was is that my care, my kingdom, the things that I want are things for my people. It's about the love that I have for people. It's about the love we're supposed to have for each other, all to glorify God. That's what it's about. And so that kind of sets the table for what he's going to be talking about uh, in these few uh, verses. And so they're up there, and, and you get through a couple of these parables, and you get to Matthew 25, 1, and he reiterates this statement that um, you see throughout Matthew. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. At that time, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he's referring to, this is what it's to be. This is how we're supposed to live. And this is what it's going to be like when I return. And you go into the parable of the talents is what they call it. And in Matthew 24, 14 to 15, I want to share that with you and, and discuss that a little bit. It says again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the way it goes is he comes back and two of the servants had taken their, their money, this blessing, this gift that he had given them, and they had invested it. They had multiplied it. When they came back, they had all this you know, more to give him and said, look what we did with the gift you gave us. And his reply is, look at what I have created for you. Look at the, the um, reward and the kingdom that I have prepared for you. And then there's this third guy that went and buried it. He went and buried this gift. And his, his fear, you know, from what you can see is that, you know, as long as I bury it, at least, you know, it's not going to go away. I won't lose it and he won't be mad at me. But really it kind of gets flipped on its head at that point because the wording Jesus uses in that story is that he calls him an evildoer and says to go away. He wants nothing to do with him. And he uses wording that he uses about hell and other places. And so he's really saying, I offered you this gift. I gave you this thing that you could have done something with and you did nothing, you went and buried it in a hole. And if we look at what Christ is trying to explain to us there, we've all been offered the gift of salvation. We've all been offered to spend eternity with the God who created everything we possibly know. And if we really get that and we choose to follow him because we've all been offered this, that how on earth could we possibly bury that in a hole and not share it? How could we not invest that in others that we know and even others that we don't know? And if we understand his view of humanity, how can we not share that with humanity? And so that's what he's leading up to. And then you get to these verses that gave me so much trouble where he's giving us an idea of how do we express that? How do we express that love? How do we express what he was just telling us? How do we share that gift of salvation with other people? And he goes on in verse 34 to say this. These are those verses. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers of mine, you did for me. And you can see the confusion because this is, again, the guy who just raised someone from the dead. This is the guy who did things that are completely unexplainable all throughout his life with them. 
And they know that if he needed something, he could just make it happen. But what he explains is, the least of these, my brothers. And there's a dual meaning there that we need to understand. There's two different things he talks about throughout Matthew uh, when the writer discusses this. And one is that he's talking about his disciples. The least of these, my brothers, refers to his disciples in several places. And then in other places, this is one of them. He's talking about those that have nowhere else to turn but him. Those that do actually need those things and they have nowhere to turn. That we are supposed to respond to that need. Those are the least of these, my brothers. These are the things that are going to glorify our Father in the end. We can't simply look at a little girl that sells herself for 50 cents to a truck driver because if she doesn't come home with money after working at the dump that day, she gets beat to a pulp by her dad. And she might as well cut her differences because the same thing's going to happen to her that that truck driver does if she doesn't bring it home. It's a real story. Little girl's nine. And sitting there listening to that, how can you possibly walk away from that and say, hey, I'll pray for you. And don't, don't hear me discounting prayer because you'll hear in a second how powerful prayer has been in this ministry. What I'm saying is there's many times God is telling you, you are to be the answer to that prayer. You're the one I've asked to do something. Until I get a little emotional about this. And part of that is I have my own kids. And how can I look at them in the eye and think they're any different than these kids? How can I honestly look at them and not respond to the need that we found? So we were left with a choice and uh, we needed to decide what to do. How do we respond to this? And so we decided to go to Cambodia. That's where you saw there. And, and at the same time, I, was, uh, I knew that I was going to be leaving the church that I was with and I wasn't going to be pastoring anymore. Um, and we were in this place of unrest because we didn't know what to do next. You know, at that point, I started thinking about how we're going to feed my kids. You know, I start thinking of the logical side of this. How am I supposed to do this? You know, it's just an idea right now. But we decided to go. And when we were over there, some really, really crazy things happened that are very much unexplainable outside of God. We were very much rescued by God from the hand of murderers while we were there. We should be dead right now. And some things happened that I really cannot explain to you outside of God. There's no way to explain it. I've talked to non-believers about this story and they don't get it outside of something else stepping in. And the whole prayer that entire time we were there is, God, if this is of you, is this is something we're supposed to do and continue on with, make it clear because I'm kind of dense. I need you to tell me. And, and he made it very clear throughout that trip. And ever since, you know, we've been able to move into the D- Dominican Republic and these other things have happened. We've seen transformation in these kids and in these families because... We simply said yes to a need. And, you know, in the Dominican Republic, we have this little girl. And, and since you guys are, are involved there, you know, this is actually an email a lot of you probably got. I know some of you are on that list. Um, this little girl, Christy, that you see on the screen, I was down there a couple weeks or a, a couple months back. 
And uh, she walked up to me, and, and I'd seen her. I kind of knew a little bit about her, but not the whole story. And she walked up, and she started tugging on my shirt. And, and you know, they call me uh, Pastore Brit. You know, I'm Brit, not Brett. And uh, she's tugging on my shirt and smiling. And, and she looks up, and she starts speaking Spanish. And I'm just not very good at Spanish yet. I'm trying. Uh, but uh, it's, it's getting there. But um, I, I snag our interpreter, and I say, hey, man, come over here. What, what's she saying? And I watch Roberto, our, our interpreter, and his eyes start... Uh, filling with tears and I'm thinking oh great you know it's already been a heavy day I don't know if I can handle this what she's saying and uh, and he just kind of looks at me he's like well uh, she's she's asking if and and he was explaining who she was she was a little girl she was born with HIV and it was through her mom so her whole life she's had this and and she's sick all the time and and so they kind of gave me the background and then told me what she said and she had said uh, you know I heard that in America, there's pills that can make me feel better. Do you know anything about those? Do you know how to find those? And I'm not sure about you, but uh, a response was needed to that. And I try to guard myself against making promises uh, to people when we're in the field, just because if we can't come through, I don't want to uh, you know, discount what we're doing or discount God because I promise something and we can't do it. But there was this moment, there was about a five to ten second window where she's staring at me and, you know, my, I'm starting to cry and I'm going emotional again and I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, and I just knee jerk reaction was, yes, we can find him and we'll have him to you in a month. And I thought, all right, well, I guess we need to find him now. I don't even know what they're called and I just know they exist. And so I came back and started researching a little bit and knew they existed, didn't know what they cost or where I was going to go about getting them or if I needed a doctor to do it, all these questions. And, and a couple weeks after we got back, I got, I got a call from Pastor Pablo down there who runs the ministry. He said, hey, um, you know, Christy's having a hard time. You know, she's, uh, she's not doing well. And he told me about her CD4 count. And I didn't really know what that was. I believe I'm calling it the right thing. Um, again, stuff that's way over my head. But um, I looked it up. And it's basically your white blood cell count. And when it gets low enough, that's when your immune system just is non-existent. And if you get sick, you know, that's what they call full-blown AIDS. That's when you can die. And um, they said, you know, it's, it's really low. And I looked it up what low was. And if you have HIV, low is 200. That's when they start making the transition into calling it AIDS, from what I'm told. And, uh, you know, a normal person like me would probably be over 1,000. And he said, well, she's at 7. And, you know, I, I looked this up and I actually got on some AIDS forums and asked that question. And they're like, whoa, who is this? You know, you need to get her help. And I didn't know what to do because we figured this is urgent. This isn't just, you know, let's try to get it to her in a month. This is urgent. And so I thought, okay, well, I put a lot of weight in prayer. And I preach that. And I teach that. And so we need to pray. And I think we need an army of people praying with us. And so I sent out a simple email to our email list. And within a few hours, I started getting emails back from uh, people in Africa and people in other countries. And I'm thinking, what in the world? How did, how did it get to you? And what had happened is it had just mushroomed into this thing where everyone was forwarding it on to people they knew. And by the end of the day, um, someone had contacted from Africa, had contacted someone they knew in Santiago, which is where she lives. And some others contacted someone else. And before you knew it, we had an email from two doctors down there. And one of them actually runs the AIDS clinic in the Dominican Republic, in Santiago. And she said, well, I'm here in Santiago. If you can get her to our clinic, we will cover all of her care free of charge because she needs this. And we just kind of sat there like, you know, within 24 hours. A simple thing is sending out an email and having a bunch of God's people cry out to him and say, help. That is what happens. It can be that simple. 
And there's not a person in this room that cannot be involved in something like that with God. There's not a person in this room that God does not have a mission for. It may not be Trash Mountain Project. Again, I'm not, I'm not here just to recruit you. You know, it's just to get involved, whether it's here locally in Topeka or somewhere else around the world, get involved in what he is doing and you will see amazing things happen in transformation. And if you sit there and you think, well, you know, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know what I have to offer. I am a living, breathing example of someone who should not be standing here. I should be dead. I tried to die a lot of times in high school and college. Very legitimate times where I should have died. And I was involved in everything under the sun. Anything that I could pleasure myself with, drugs, alcohol, party, whatever, you name it, I was involved in it. But I was empty. Yeah, did I have fun? People that knew me thought I was having fun. But I was empty. I didn't like my family. I didn't like people. And then he decided to get a hold of me. He reached out and there's all these people and some of them are sitting in this room right now that were praying for me when I was going through that mess and God rescued me. And I responded to his call of salvation. Just said, yes, I'll follow you. And things started changing. Was it easy? Absolutely not. I had a lot of problems. We got through it. And every person in here, I don't care what you're going through right now. I may not have gone through it. You you know, it may be something completely different that I couldn't even understand. But here's the thing. None of that stuff is above God. It's nothing that can't be redeemed. And the the dual meaning of that least of these my brothers is this. We are all in that boat. The least of these my brothers, it's everybody in this room. And God used other people to rescue me out of the situation I was in that I really, like I say, I think I'd probably be dead at this point if I wasn't. He used other people to rescue me and now he's giving us the opportunity to go do the same thing for that other segment of society, the least of these, that have nowhere else to turn but God. And that's the message. What happens if we just say yes? What would happen if a room this big full of this many people just said yes? Just made themselves available and said, yes, God, what do you want to do with me? I think it'd be an amazing thing. And I think we'd see the power of the church played out, not only here, but around the world. If we truly believe that God is still the rescuer that he is, what happens when we say yes? Let's pray. Father, I just uh, just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, um, just to be alive today with you, and to have the opportunity to be here at Fellowship and and with the, the people that you have placed here this morning for a reason. And God, I would just I would I would lift up all the needs in this room because we know that there are needs in this room. People are going through things, and I would just ask that you wrap your arms around them and tell them that you are there. And that you would use this moment to inspire them. Use this moment to to give them purpose if they haven't found it. And if they have it, just that they keep moving along with it. And that if there's some way that we can all work together, then we will do it and that we will respond with a yes. I just pray a special blessing on this church as it moves forward and with all the things that are doing within this city, but also around the world. 
that you would continue to move them forward and continue to grow what it is they're doing for your purposes, God. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.